Welcome and take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing our series on spiritual stability and today our subject is contentment. Our subject is contentment. We'll be studying the first clause of chapter 4 verse 5. Beginning in verse chapter 4, it says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. We're going to study that phrase, let your gentleness be known to all men as I show you the necessity of being content for spiritual stability. The necessity of being content for spiritual stability. Now just as a brief recap for the whole series as we've been studied, studying, you can stand fast in the Lord and be encouraged to do so. We saw that in verse 1 and the question naturally arises, how? How do we stand fast in the Lord? How do we stand firm as we are commanded? And how do we implement this to bring about spiritual uh, stability in our lives? And Paul introduced that subject and in verse 2 as he deals with a conflict that's going on in the church at this time. And he gives seven basic uh, principles as to what leads to spiritual stability. And the first thing we learned about was cultivating harmony in the church fellowship. And I showed you how the lack of peace and harmony is just as bad as having false doctrine and false teachers. Uh, the result is the same thing, a disunified body. Then he talked it last week as we studied about maintaining a spirit of joy as a necessity for spiritual maturity. And today we're talking about learning to be content, learning to be content. Now remember, Paul is in prison. He's in prison when he is writing this church when it is having a problem with false teaching. And uh, Paul tells the believers that they are to walk about rejoicing in the Lord. He tell, and I showed last week in the message in, the, in, in our study on rejoicing in the Lord is that rejoicing will guard you against false teachings and the trials of life. And I showed you how it was a deep-seated contentment. It was not a, 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 a sense of peace. It, it, rather, it, it's, it's not an emotion. It's this sense of, of absolute stability that God is in control. He's sovereign, and uh, He's going to take care of, of that which uh, He's called you to. Well, he tells them to rejoice, and now he says, let your gentle spirit be no made known to all men. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Now this is particularly perplexing for us English speakers because the word gentle spirit does not translate uh, effectively uh, from the Greek to the English we just simply don't have an English word for the Greek word that's there. It's epiikis, epiikis. It means gentle spirit to some interpreters. Uh, it's the only time it appears in the New Testament uh, of five times, uh, two, three times, four times it's a noun. Here it's an adjective. And uh, this is the only time it appears 
like this anywhere, Epiicus. And uh, uh, it has a richer meaning than any English word can convey. And so much of what I'm going to speak to you about this morning is trying to convey the meaning of the text from its context. Uh, commentators in various Bible versions vary widely in how it is, how it is rendered. Uh, some will use uh, sweet reasonableness, others generosity and goodwill. Uh, you'll have a friendliness or magnanimity. I'm sorry, magnanimity, uh, charity towards the faults of others, mercy towards the faults of others, indulgence of the faults of others. You'll have leniency, big-heartedness, uh, moderation and forbearance, yieldedness, and gentleness are some attempts to capture the rich meaning of this word epiakes. And... Uh, and perhaps the best corresponding English word, though, is graciousness. It's graciousness, perhaps. The graciousness of humility. Uh, humility is, is anything but speaking about self. And, of course, we've all heard the story of the little boy, if you don't recall, that was in the Boy Scouts, and he received the badge for humility the merit badge for humility, and he went home and showed it to his mother, and upon doing so, they took the merit badge away from him. Uh, humility is not self-abasement. It's, it's just leaving self out all completely. So there's some idea that this word, epiakes, is a word that means humble, gracious, or graciousness of humility. Uh, the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice and disgrace and mistreatment uh, without uh, retaliation, without bitterness or vengeance. You just roll with it. You just take it. In a word that describes to me contentment. Contentment. The necessity of learning contentment for spiritual stability Paul speaks later on in verse 11, right here in this text, he says, Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That kind of gives us an indication of where he's going from this place. In verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. Now, gracious humility runs counter to the cult that is evident everywhere today and is the cult of self-love. It is rampant in our society today as it was rampant in the society back then. But the focus on self-love and self-esteem and self-fulfillment leads only to greater and greater instability and anxiety. Whereas on the other hand, uh, those who focus in on themselves, or excuse me, those who do not focus in on themselves, they cannot be knocked off balance by iniquity, injustice, unfair treatment, lies, or humiliation. They're not concerned with themselves. They can say with Paul, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. We all know people, I believe, that are truly contented people. And it's not that they have much or they have little, they just have contentment. And so spiritual stability belongs 
to the graciously humble. Spiritual stability belongs to the graciously humble, and the graciously humble are normally people who have truly learned to be content, have learned to be content. Yet, you know, this is, this is preaching, and in the exercise of preaching, when we bring it, uh, the message to God's people, we need to know what the text meant. And that requires some exactness. We need to describe it with some exactness. I've given you a pretty general idea of this word epiakes, um, but we need to get a little bit more specific to move forward. So having a gentle spirit, being graciously humble, being content, <clears throat> ultimate leads to yielding, to yielding. Yielding is not insisting. Now listen, this is very important. This is very important for all of us today. But yielding is not insisting on one's legal rights as is often inserted into someone's moral wrong. When they have been done wrong, they say, well, you, you don't have the right to do that or you have taken my right away. We hear this so much, especially in the country where I live. We speak of rights. We speak of rights often, sadly, not in the right way often enough. Uh, by making what is known in a legal term, sumus juice turns into summa injuria, which is a legal term that means for extreme right may produce extreme wrong. Summa, sumum juice, summa injuria. Extreme right, extreme right may produce extreme wrong. So, Yielding always refers to the treatment of others while meekness is an inner quality. Meekness, on the other hand, is not, is not yielding. Meekness is an inner strength. It's power under control. Yielding, however, refers to how I treat other people. Meekness speaks to how I treat myself, but yielding refers to how I treat other people. Many virtues converge in yielding and in yieldingness, such as clemency, for example, which is leniency or mercy or forgiveness or penance, redemption, absolution, acquittal, and salvation. Another virtue that converges with yieldingness is equality or conformity or symmetry. Uh, the concept of fairness, in fact, it is the origin of the English word equity. Equity. And another virtue that converges with yieldedness, this concept of, of being gentle in spirit, being graciously humble, being content, is this word modesty. Modesty. So you have clemency, equality, and modesty. Now, one of the things that I want you to know is that sharing those three virtues with you actually come from the Roman Latin the way that they looked at this idea of, of, uh, of yielding. These are actually words that I have uh, translated from Latin, clemency, equality, and modesty. And, uh, but I want you to understand something. Just as the Greek to English cannot give us an exact meaning, 
neither does the Greek to Latin give us an exact meaning of what this picture looks like, but we do know one that does give us the exact meaning, and that is God Himself. God and Christ don't define it. They exhibited it. They exhibited what this gentleness be known to all men. They exhibited what this gentleness is. God deals leniently with men. Amen? God deals leniently with men. God remembers, the Bible says, that we are but dust. He knows our frames and He knows that we are dust. He withholds justice for a long time. He'll withhold justice a long time. And Christ is, is gentle. He's kind and He's patient. And He's more than only fair. He's more than only fair. So whereas we try to define it in English and we try to define it in Latin, the reality of is, is that its definition can only be seen in the example of God and Christ through the pages of Scripture. What this idea of let your gentleness be known to all men. Now, only a perverted person truly would think that yieldingness might include a yielding of truth to error. I mean, you really have to be either cynical or so skeptical or just so perverted in, in your understanding of yieldedness that you would think that they're talking about yielding of truth to error or yielding of right to wrong or yielding of, vir of virtue to vice and crime. Uh, that is not at all what is given here. That's certainly not a picture of <clears throat> what God has done in His dealings with men throughout Scripture. And again, our definition comes from observing Him and so let me tell you of a, of a book, a book that was written in, I believe it's 1885 by a man named uh, W. Pater, P-A-T-E-R, W. Pater. And the, book's entitled, the book is titled Marius the Epicurean. Marius the Epicurean. And this book is a philosophical novel. It's not a historical treatise. It's a, it's a, it's a philosophical novel. So I, we're going back several, we're going back a hundred plus years, though, to show you how that, in fact, the Christians were seen in the eyes of a young Roman boy in Rome who was uh, searching for a philosophy that suits him, whether it was going to be Stoicism or Hedonism or Platonism or Aristotelianism. Obviously, the title of the book is about is uh, says uh, Marius the Epicurean. Well, obviously, he became an Epicurean in the book, <clears throat> but the book gives an interesting twist on how the pagan world at that time viewed Christian society, viewed people that were part of of uh, of the church. And so let me read to you this quote. Now, I want you to remember this is written in 1885 English, which uh, for me is not a 21st century Texan. And so uh, it describes the spirit of the new Christian society as it appeared to the pagan. 
And I quote, If by way of a clue, recognition of some immeasurable divine condescension manifests in a certain historic fact, its Christian society, its influence was felt more especially at those points which demanded some sacrifice of oneself for the weak, for the aged, for the little children, even for the dead. And then for Christian, the Christian society's constant outward token was its significant manner or index. It issued a certain debonair grace and a certain mystic attractiveness, a courtesy which made young Marius doubt whether the famed Greek blitheness, which is cheerful indifference, or gaiety or grace in the handling of life had been, after all, an unrivaled success. You see, the philosophers tried to, their, their goal was to live the virtuous life. They wanted to be virtuous. These were, not, these were not bad men. For the most part, they wanted to do what was virtuous. One, one group of them I know a little bit about were the Stoics. Uh, we quote the Stoics more than any of them today, whether it be uh, uh, um, Seneca or, or uh, Cicero or uh, other uh, Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman emperor, um, all Stoics. Uh, they believed in practical wisdom and temperance. Uh, they believed in fortitude or courage and justice. And they believed that those were four virtues that one needed to pr practice in the pursuit of good, in the pursuit of good, of doing good. And they, they believed that, that whatever happened in life, they were only in control of their own life but they could not control how someone responded to them or what someone said to them. And consequently, their life was what they believed totally in their own hands. Now, this is, this is not uh, in keeping with Christianity, for sure. It's, it's certainly not in keeping with Judaism. Uh, but also, as a result of, of their thought, um, they, were not, uh, they, they wished to be happy. They wished to have a sense of contentment. Uh, they would make their own bed and sleep in it, so to speak, and they would be grateful to do it. But consequently, they would not hope in anything because to hope in something is to expect it not to happen, and that would mess up their contentment. And so young Marius the Epicurean, since he has gone to be the Epicurean, uh, follow the teachings of Epicurus, he has decided, you know what, uh, uh, eat and drink and be merry for t tomorrow we die. He was a hedonist. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the life he chose, whereas the Stoics were saying, no, we can be, uh, have this, this what it, how did he say it, this, this blithefulness, this cheerful indifference to the things that are going on around us. And in this context, it's saying that these Christians seem to condescend all of that. They didn't condescend to it. They condescended from their noble place, their mystic attractiveness, their, their debonair graciousness. They were always willing to pass out a helping hand. They were willing to help the, the sick and the, the infirm, the, the old and the young alike. And, and young Marius the Epicurean is wondering, is any of this philosophy I believed even really true considering how these Christians behave? They were known as the book indicates, 
for their gentleness, for their yielding, for their gentle spirit, for their gracious humility, for their contentment. The philosophers had not found what the Christians in that time had found. So we have a historical record of this truth brought forth in a fictitious novel. I think that's rather fascinating. You see, this is not yielding of a slave or of an inferior person. That's what I want you to understand. It is not the yielding of a slave or a servant servant or an inferior person, but a superior, one who is noble and a person of a generous spirit. That's the idea here. The Christian keeps his high nobility. Remember this. He's a child of God, the Scripture says. He keeps his high nobility, he, yet he condescends. He considers the weak and the needy, and also the pitifulness of the world's haughty and the tyrannical. He considers, he considers the pitifulness of the world's nobility, of the world's haughty ones, of the world's, who, of the world, world's tyrants. He, can, he sees them, and he condescends to their pitiful state. Yet he remains his nobility. He has the purest and noblest of grace, which few are able to resist. And that's what young Marius was having a problem with. No doubt, uh, W. Uh, Pater, who wrote the book, was having a problem with it. This gentleness, let your gentleness be known to all men. So, all of, all of, this, all of, all of this lies in the term of uh, Epiakia. It's right here having a gentle spirit, being graciously humble, uh, being content and yielding. And we see this in Jesus Christ. And as we have read from an author removed from us over a century ago, apparently he figured it out looking back to ancient Rome. So he saw it from the testimony of the Christians then. And so... These are to characterize the church, having a gentle spirit, being graciously humble, being content and yielding. And it's to come from a joyous heart because remember, immediately he talks about rejoice in the Lord. Always again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. If you go to the text and you look at verse 3, he wants them to be complete in unity. He wants them to be whole. In verse 4, he wants them to be happy. In verse 5, he wants them to be holy. Holy. H-O-L-Y. Holy. Let their, your gentleness be known. And so Paul made this emphatic. He made this absolutely emphatic by reminding them that the Lord was at hand. Because notice the text. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, I deal with that last clause with verse 6, be anxious for nothing. The Lord is at hand, be anxious for nothing. But here you must agree that it is an emphasis. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. So the statement sobers Christian for two reasons. It sobers us. It's a sobering statement to we who believe. He will come as judge expecting to see this quality in His people. And having personified the quality Himself, He knows what it's like. So He's going to come judge us in it. 
And he's experienced in it because he demonstrated it. And Paul says that Christians are to let their gentleness be evident to all. So, so listen, listen very carefully. The sentence is a warning not to be unduly rigorous about unimportant matters. You might want to write that down. It is a warning to believers to not be unduly rigorous about unimportant matters. In other words, um, don't focus on the minors, focus on the majors. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. But we all know that there's a fly in the ointment. There's a fly in the ointment. We have things that, that make us nervous and make us anxious and bother us and get us upset and, and unsettled. Uh, as we like to say down here in Texas, we get a burr in our saddle or a rock in our boot. And uh, the reality of it is, is that it's a warning. Listen, this does not mean that Christians are to be compromising their doctrinal beliefs. Christians are not to, be not to be compromising their doctrinal beliefs. I will tell you this, I was reading a, a, the early this morning about uh, Dr. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he made a quote some time ago where he's quoted as having said, those who, those who dismiss doctrine have never studied biblical doctrine. Those who dismiss doctrine have never studied biblical doctrine. They, people that, that say things like doctrine is just of man, I shared in last week's message very plainly, uh, we are taught in Scripture to study the doctrine of Scripture. These are not the teachings of men, they are the teachings of God. It is the framework that's literally the frame that emphasizes Jesus, that goes around Him. And so, this does not mean that we're to compromise our doctrinal beliefs. That is, Paul is not talking about doctrine here any more than he talks about doctrine where he referred to the mind of Christ in verse 2. He's not, talk about, he's not talking about compromise with the world's standard of conduct either. He has already written that Christians are to live over here in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, you are to live blameless and pure, be blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Okay? He wrote the Roman Christians that they were not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. In Romans 12, verse 2, the mind, not their feelings, the mind. And actually, he is merely saying that those who profess the name of Christ should be a bit bending in their attitudes. Let me say that again. He's saying they need to be a bit bending in their attitudes, especially where other Christians are concerned. Especially where other Christians are concerned. Neither are we to have a personality so inflexible that people bounce off of it like tennis balls bouncing off a stone wall. We're not supposed to be like that. We're to listen to others, even tolerate their error for a time in order that God in His time might use us better to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. You can become so hard on someone 
that the very good that you desire to do, you wind up injuring them where they cannot come back to you. That is the concept of summum jus summa injuria. For where there is extreme right, it may produce extreme wrong. You lose your ability dying on hills that you should not be dying on to fight another day. But that doesn't mean, again, that he's talking about compromising doctrine. He's saying here in this text, be gentle, be gentle. And that's gentleness comes from contentment. You see, it is by a conformity to this latter precept, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, no less than his obedience to the former. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You see that? It's a conformity. They go together. The precept, let your gentleness be made, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, is no less than obedience to the former. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Thus, the true Christian will be distinguished from all other. How will he be distinguished? How will she be distinguished? By a genuine joy in the Lord and a genuine contentment and a seeking after contentment not in philosophies, but a seeking after contentment in Christ Jesus. And that work of contentment being worked up where it brings about the calmness in that person's life, because that's another word for this idea of gentleness, this yielding. It brings a calmness to the circumstances. So he's enduring them. Now listen, I'm going to use a word here, equanimity. Equanimity. It is a word, it's an English word. It, it's a word that's not used much in our vocabulary, but I need you to begin using it in yours to understand it. It's a, it's a proper word, and it's a powerful word. He's exhorting them to endure all things with equanimity. Equanimity means mental calmness. He says to endure all things with mental calmness, with composure, with an evenness of temper especially in difficult circumstances. Let me use equanimity in a sentence. She accepted both the good and the bad with equanimity. Let me ask you this question. Do you accept the good and the bad both with equanimity? Now, you know the truth, whether or not you do. Now, lest you lie to yourself, why don't you ask somebody that knows you very well if you'd uh, suffer good and bad uh, with equanimity. And you'll find out that there needs to be a work of contentment. Your gentleness needs to be worked on. Our gentleness needs to be known. You see, in doing so, when we are not easily moved by injuries, when we are not easily annoyed by adversities, we retain the equanimity of temper. The equanimity of temper in accordance with this, Cicero makes use of the following expression. He says these words, My mind is tranquil, which takes everything in good part. It takes everything in good part. In other words, Cicero is saying this Stoic didn't know Jesus, didn't confess a deity. But this Stoic is saying even for him, he has trained himself that his mind to be tranquil and he takes things as they come. Such composure he requires here on the part of the Philippians, however. Paul wants this to be from Christ in you, the hope of glory, not from the teachings of Cicero or Seneca 
or, or those of that day. Uh, Rutilius Putilius Rufus would have been one of the great Stoics of the time that would have influenced. In fact, he was the grandfather to Cicero as a, as a philosopher. And so what he is doing, he says, this composure right here, he requires, and indeed such composure will manifest itself to all according as occasions are required by producing its proper effect. You want to be the person in the room that's calm when everything goes sideways. To be calm, to be tranquil. Even, I mean, so, so th this is something that, that, that you have to learn uh, at school. I, I, I'm going to tell a story in just a minute. I'm wanting to tell it now. I'll tell it in just a minute. But he directs them to conduct themselves peacefully in everything and exercise control over themselves, even in endurance of injuries or inconveniences. I can tell you how you can deal with equanimity. Just go stand in line at the grocery store. Um, or the other day, um, I needed a new, uh, I, needed, I needed something for my vehicle that was a, a necessity for it, and I drove 70 miles to get it. And when I got to the place where it was, a sign had just been hung on the door that said closed until further notice. And I had made arrangements to be there to get what I needed. And I just went back to my car and I just, I, I, I had to make myself be calm about it because this was a 140 mile round trip. And I'm time poor on top of that. And the lady came out and she saw me and she said, sir, we've had a pipe break inside the building and we can't help anyone. Well, immediately my little bit of non-equanimity uh, was, was completely removed uh, to mercy and even graciousness. How can I help? And uh, I got on the phone and they took care of it over, over the phone and I'll get what I need in the mail next week. But we all, we're all tried. It, it's all going to happen. I mean, to live your life, you're, you're, you're a missionary in this soil of travail. Uh, you just are. And uh, we're not called to live on easy street. Uh, we're going to be exposed to false teaching, false teachers, and trials and tribulations. We're to consider it pure joy, for it produces perseverance and character in us, and faithfulness and godliness. So the bottom line is this. They are to learn contentment. They are to learn contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 says. This is truly a Christian reaction to adversity, which is the context in which spiritual contentment is most deeply tested as well as best manifested. You'll never know if you have Christian contentment until you go through the test of adversity. You'll never know. And you'll never grow in contentment unless you go through adversity. And so such contentment is never the result of a momentary decision of the will. There's a story of one of my favorite preachers, and uh, he tells a story of how he was teaching at a youth uh, conference about contentment. And uh, he had preached uh, the two first plenary sessions, two hours of preaching, that is, and then he was taken aside. He, he writes this 
in, in his message on contentment. And he says, I was taken aside by the group and they said, you have preached now for two hours on contentment and you have not taught us how to be content. <laughs> and he, he, he is an older man. He's an older theologian. He is very well versed in scripture and his walk with the Lord. And, you know, knowing contentment is, is a result of learning contentment. But contentment is not really taught, it's caught. It's not really taught, it's caught. That's why I can't give you four or five steps on how to be content. I can only show you an example or examples, but I'm going to just show you an example today. It cannot be produced by merely having a well-ordered and thought-through time and life management plan calculated to guard us against unexpected twists of divine providence. Uh, no, true contentment means embracing the Lord's will. You need to write this down. True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of His providence simply because it is His providence. That's what true contentment's all about. True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of His providence simply because it is His providence. Period. So there's your definition. So basically, if you read this text with that definition, it would say, let your embracing of the Lord's will in every aspect of His providence be seen by all men simply because it is His providence. That's how you could literally translate verse 5 today. It involves what we are in our very being, not just what we can do and accomplish. So this idea of contentment does not have anything to do with financial security, houses or land or assets or, um, well, pleasures, medications, or whatever. This has something to do with, this has totally to do with the inward man. So we cannot do contentment. I want you to write that down. We cannot do contentment. We cannot do it. It is taught by God and it is caught by the Christian. It is caught by the Christian. We need to be schooled in it. It's part of the process of being transformed through the renewing of our mind in Romans 12, 1 through 2. It's commanded of us, but paradoxically it is created in us because it is not done to us. It's one of the great graces God gives us. It is not a product of a series of actions, but of a renewed and transformed character, and it involves the growth of a good tree that produces good fruit. And so it's, contentment is not something that you do. Contentment is something that you have. Content is something that you are. Quote, this seems to be a difficult principle for Christians today to grasp. Clear directives of Christians living are essential for us. This is the truth, but sadly much of the heavily programmatic teaching current in evangelicalism places such a premium on external doing and achieving that character development is set at as a discount. Just give me the six steps I've got to do and I'll do it and that's that. I'm content. And it has care, developing contentment is an issue of character. It's not an issue of memorization. We live in the most pragmatic society on earth. If anyone can do it, we can. That's, that's the attitude. If anyone can do it, we can. It is painful to pride, it is painful to pride to discover that the Christian life is not rooted in what we can do 
but in what we need done in us. That's the most painful thing to our pride. It's not what we can do, but what we need done in us. So how does one apply? How does all this apply to contentment? Everything that we've talked about, how does this apply to contentment? So write this down. Christian contentment means that my satisfaction is independent of my circumstances. My satisfaction is independent of my circumstances. When Paul speaks about his own contentment in Philippians 4.11, where he says, I've learned to be content in all things, he uses a term commonplace among the ancient Greek philosophical schools of the Stoics and the Cynics. That is, in their vocabulary, contentment meant self-sufficiency in the sense of independence from changing circumstances. Okay? But for Paul, contentment was rooted not in self-sufficiency, but in Christ's sufficiency. And that's why he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why he says that. Now don't skip over that last phrase. He says, I can do all things through Christ, or some translations say, in Christ. I can do all things through Christ or in Christ. This kind of contentment is the fruit of an ongoing, intimate, deeply developed relationship with Jesus Christ. And to use Paul's term, contentment is something we have to learn. And here is the crux of the matter. To learn it, we need to enroll in the divine school in which we are instructed by biblical teaching and providential experience. And I can show you this. A good sample of the lessons learned in this school are found in Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. Psalm 131. The Lord, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eye lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. For surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forever. Psalm 31, the psalmist gives us a vivid description of what it means to learn contentment. What it means to learn contentment. He portrays his experience in terms of a child being weaned from a milk diet onto solid food. Lord, my heart is not haughty, he says, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters. Again, listen to what he says, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. You need to remember that in the Old Testament times, now listen, this is important. In Old Testament times, sometimes the weaning of a child didn't take place until that child was three or four years old. Yeah, that's right. Until that child was three or four years old. For sure it's hard enough for a mother to cope with an infant's dissatisfied cries and refusal of solid food, and the struggle of the will during the weaning progress process. But can you imagine the struggle with a four-year-old? With a four-year-old that can talk, that can run, that can scream, that can slam doors? That was the measure of the struggle that David went through before he learned contentment. 
But what was the struggle all about? What was the struggle all about that brought this newfound contentment that he says, the psalmist says here, David helps us suggesting two great issues that needed to be settled in his life. Maybe they need to be settled in your life, but I'm going to share it with you. Nonetheless, one is holy ambition. Holy ambition. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Listen, ambition in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. For sure, David had been set apart for the throne. After all, we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But he had higher ambition to trust God's wise providing, placing, and timing. Do you trust God's providing, placing, and timing? For sure, there had been occasions when David could have seized position and power by means that would have compromised his commitment to the Lord. I believe it was 20 years from the time he was anointed until he sat on the throne over the unified Israel. Saul came to the very cave where David and his men were hiding later in, in 1 Samuel 24, and David could have killed the king there. Later, David and Abashi crept into Saul's tent and found him asleep, and he could have driven a tent peg right through his head. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, he didn't do it there. On other occasions, he could have easily captured and even killed Saul who had become his enemy, and after all, was he not the anointed future king? Had he not already been anointed and told he would be king? Had Saul already not lost his anointing already? But David was content to live by the directives of God's word and wait patiently for God's time with God's providing. He learned it in the school of hard knocks. He learned it in the midst of adversarial conflict. Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at His disposal. Totally at His disposal. In the place He appoints, at the time He chooses, and with the provision He is, met, he is pleased to make for us. I mean, it does sound amazing, doesn't it? But you can't learn it unless you go through the school because you have to catch it and you have to catch it where it's taught. It was with mature wisdom then that the young Robert Murray McShane, who was a great preacher, I believe he died at 30 or before. Uh, his McShane reading calendar is still read today by many. I read it. It has always been my aim and it's my prayer to have no plans with regard to myself. That's how he lived his life. Robert Murray McShane, it has always been my aim and it is my prayer to have no plans with regard to myself. How unusual, we say. How unusual. Yes, but what people noticed about McShane was how content he was to pursue one driving ambition. And it's what Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 10, to know Christ to know Christ. So take away, the takeaway from this little portion is it is not accidental that when we make Christ our ambition, we discover that He becomes our sufficiency and we learn contentment in all circumstances. So if you want to learn contentment, you're going to have to make Jesus Christ your ambition. It's not what you regard for yourself. 
You plan to make no regard for yourself. It's what regards you have of Him. To know nothing but Christ alone. Again, David helps us to suggest two great issues that needed to be settled. Holy ambition. And the second one I wish to share with you briefly is false preoccupations. False preoccupations. He says, Neither do I concern myself with great matters, things too profound for me. I want you to write this down. Contentment is the fruit of a mindset that understands its limitations. Contentment is the fruit of a mindset that understands its limitations. David did not allow himself to be preoccupied with what God was not pleased to give to him. Neither did he allow his mind to become fixated on things God had not been pleased to explain to him. Okay? And the point is that such preoccupations suffocate contentment. If I insist on knowing exactly what God is doing and what He plans to do with my future, if I demand to understand His ways with me in the, ways with me in the past, I can never be content until I am equal with God. And so therefore, really trying to set oneself up as God is, is the fruit of non-contentment. So let me give you a warning how slow we are to recognize this subtle mental temptation that echoes the serpent in Eden. Express your dissatisfaction with God's ways, God's words, and God's provisions. Take what He has forbidden. He does not really love you, so take it. And take it now while you have the chance. That was the lie the devil told them in the garden, and that is the reason people are in the church are not content today. They're still believing the lie. It was more complex than that because it included discontentment. And we learn a discontent spirit is both the fruit and evidence of an ungodly heart. A discontent spirit is both the fruit and the evidence of an ungodly heart. So in conclusion, I want you to write this down because this is what it's all about. Learning contentment leads to living gently. Learning contentment leads to living gently. Given that this conflict exists in this text between these two powerful women, he makes this appeal, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. In the midst of this relational storm between Euodia and Syntyche, the believers in the church should not allow their emotions to escalate and intensify and so become angry at others, possibly reach, reacting harshly to one another. Such times of friction can bring the worst out in people. And we know very clearly that a house that's divided cannot stand. Instead, they should show a gentle spirit, Epiaches. They should show a gentle spirit. They should be mild in reacting to one another. They should be yielding, birthed from a contentment that they have learned. This calls for patience, though. Now we're talking about living gently. This calls for patience with both those who would otherwise provoke a response of anger, and it calls to overlook the faults of another. 
Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Just a harsh word. You can say a harsh word in low tones, and you can stir up great anger. This gentle spirit must be shown to all men. That's what the text says. We've seen it from a historical standpoint of how it affected a writer writing about Roman philosophy. We've seen it in the life of Jesus Christ and God. We've seen it how David learned it as it's revealed in Psalm, as it's revealed in Psalm 131. And so the intent is probably that the Philippians should demonstrate loving patience to all who are being polarized in the church. We need to be living gently today because we're living in the most polarized times probably since the advent of the transistor radio. People are absolutely polarized to such a degree that a person cannot even finish a sentence when you talk about many issues. And there needs to be the gentleness, and that gentleness needs to be seen from the only place it can truly come from. It's the people of God. We need to live gentle, peaceful lives based upon contentment. And of course, such gentleness must also be exhibited towards unbelievers outside of the church. But given the context, Paul's appeal is surely directed towards the believers inside the church who are being pulled into the dispute between these two women. They must show, they must show a level-headed response to all involved. That is the meaning of that word as best I can do in these 55 minutes epiikes. But there's enough here to take away, I believe, by God's grace. We must learn to be content. Because if we learn to be content, it will lead to living gently. And that's why it is a necessity to be content in order to have spiritual stability. Father, thank you for this word, this time. It was, it was a pleasure to share it. It was, it was a great pleasure to prepare it. I pray first and foremost for myself that you cause... I, I wish to re-enroll in this school yet again. I wish to live as a gentle man. Uh, as much as I believe that I'm calm, I would love even all the more to have this concept of true contentment that does not come from my own prudence and fortitude, but, but has been birthed in me through Christ Jesus. I pray this, Father, for also for my loved ones and, and Father, for those in the hearing of my voice and your church visible, that, Lord, you would cause us in our calmness to be sought out to be part of the solution to today's problems instead of creating the problems and negating us from being able to help with the solution. We, we have the solution. It's Christ Jesus. But Father, it is my true belief that no one will listen to us if they don't like us. And so I do ask, Lord, that you cause us to enter into this fine school to learn this process of contentment, that we may catch it, that we may lead lives that are gentle. If there's anyone, Father, in the hearing of my voice 
this day that has not ever called upon the name of the Lord, may they understand that it is through Christ alone and faith alone in Him that will bring grace alone to their life. And I pray, Father, as the Bible says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, that, Lord, You would cause faith to rise up in those that have heard today, faith that would save their souls from separation from You for eternity. For You are a holy God, and we love You because of it. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the countenance of the Lord turn itself upon you that you may have peace. For it is from Him and through Him and to Him that we have all things in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.